and we're live. Welcome to the Investor's Center. The Investor's Side is your investor's guide to health, wealth, and happiness. Hosted every Sunday by yours truly, Dan Scarabini. The upcoming podcast is not strictly financial advice. I would always advise each and every one of you to do your own research before putting your capital at risk. Hi guys, welcome back to the investor side and welcome back to part two of our podcast, The History of Money. In last week's podcast, we went from a timeline before Christ until the Great Depression. And in today's podcast, we'll be going through World War II until present day today. We'll be covering everything in between, including the 08 crash, the invention of Bitcoin and many more. So stay tuned, stay with me. There's a lot to learn. And we'll also talk about the future, which all of this does tie into in our current financial system. So diving in, in comes World War II, where 70 million people died. And that's three times the amount of people of World War I. It was something that was never seen before in human history. In 1944, all of the countries involved in the war, they met up at Bretton Woods in New Hampshire to come up with a new monetary system. It was agreed that the dollar would become the currency of the world and dollar would be pegged to gold. So all currencies would be on the dollar standard and dollars had to be backed by gold at the time. The US rose to power. This was officially when they became the world's superpower, as they are today. World War II finished. Loads of people, to celebrate this, had sex. Crazy, right? So everyone couldn't see their partners for such a long time. All they'd done was just had sex, had a great time, and the 50s was a time of power, a great golden era. And this created the largest population boom in human history. In America alone, the population grew 40% across 20 years. And across the world, the world population grew 30% in the space of 20 years. And if you think about it, 20 years is nothing. So this was a massive shock to the world. This population boom actually ties into what we'll be speaking about later. So keep it at the forefront of your mind, guys. And um, so back to the story. To stimulate the economy after World War II, the US kept interest rates low and printed money like never seen before. And the reason for this was to encourage a new era of spending and getting the world back on its feet after the most devastating war of all time. Due to low interest rates and the birth of credit, people began borrowing money from the banks to spend on homes, cars, gadgets and toys. The first ever credit card, guys, was introduced in 1950. Household debt went from $29.4 billion in 1945 to $125.7 billion in 1955. And remember how we mentioned in last podcast, the Great Depression, people became more resourceful. And this was 20 years before the 50s. So innovation is essentially what got us out of the Great Depression, along with other things, investing the money into innovation. And during these tough times, the Great Depression in the 30s, people became more resourceful, more productive to make a living, and innovation went through the roof. But no one really paid attention to it in the 30s as no one had a penny to their name. And no one really paid attention to it in the 40s as production turned from gadgets and innovation to tanks, machinery, all war focused. So they had 20 years of pure distraction. And now in the 50s, all of this innovation comes to them. Borrowing money has never become easier. 
these people are like, wow, we have all of these things at our disposal. It became easy. Life became amazing. In the 50s, the rich and the poor lived very similar lives, which I'm going to go on to in a minute. And it's all due to the birth of credit, the new innovation, and America and the world getting the world back on its feet, giving everyone an equal chance to spend, make a living, and stimulate the economy. When I'm talking about these gadgets in the 50s, I mainly mean cool new inventions such as cars, phones, aircon, and electricity. Those were the main things. So all of these things that were nearly impossible to get in the 40s, when producers turned to making tanks, guns, and ships, now all became possible. So put yourself in people's shoes. Imagine the realisation of new gadgets, the euphoria of coming out of a long war, and the birth of borrowing money cheaply. It was one of the greatest spending shifts in human history. Another thing to back this up, the growing economy in the 50s, was how many homes were built. So in 1940 to 1945, 2 million homes were built. Then in 45 to 50, 7 million homes were built. And from 1950 to 1955, 8 million new homes were built. Everything was on the rise, production and spending. So the economy for the first time in a long time was booming from a production and a spending standpoint, which is something that we haven't seen in a long time. The average wages also doubled from 1940 to 1948. And then they doubled again by 1963. The poor became less poor and all of these new gadgets were affordable for all the rich and the poor. What fascinates me the most about the 50s was how the rich and the poor lived almost identical lives for the first time ever. So they had the same TV sets, smoked the same cigarettes, shaved with the same razors, and they had the same like heating equipment at home. Everything was the same. And if you put this into context, there were only one TV channel. So people were watching the same television programs. So a rich person and a poor person not only did they live identical lives, they also related with one another. People had very similar lives, which I find fascinating and amazing. And it's a reason why, if I could go back in time, hypothetically, I know I bloody can't, but um, I'd definitely go back to the 50s. I think it's an amazing time for all kinds of people, which I love. Also, debt at the time was high, which can be seen as a problem, as it's a problem today. But the earnings were increasing, so it didn't matter so much in the 50s and 60s. And it's a big argument out there, and a lot of people agree that the 60s were our last golden generation, and it all went downhill from then, which a lot of stats do back up from a monetary perspective. So people were getting real pay rises at the time, and a real pay rise means when your pay rise exceeds the amount of inflation. So in 2020, for example, to bring it to today, we saw, or 2021, we saw inflation at 7%. Real wages and minimum wage did not go up 7%. So we have not received real pay rises. If you've got a 2% pay rise, you think you've got a pay rise. You've got a pay rise technically, but you haven't got a pay rise to the previous year as your money's lost 7% of its value. That's what a real pay rise means when your wage exceeds the rate of inflation. Now down this long timeline, which we've been covering, we're now in the 1970s. And you're going to hear me talk about America a lot because America are the world epicenter of the economy. They're the world's superpower. So everything that happens in America to their economy 
affects the world wider than anything anyone else, as you'd probably imagine. So 1973 was the first year where it became clear that times were changing. A recession begun, which resulted in the highest unemployment rate since the Great Depression in the 1930s. Inflation surged and stayed high as more people than ever before entered the workforce. Remember, guys, I told you about the people in the 50s having sex, phase of euphoria. Now this huge population of people have all gone into the workforce at the same time. Baby boomers begin, they begun entering the workforce in 1967. And by 1975, the average baby boomer was in the workforce. This was the highest increase in people in the workforce ever. It resulted in the price of everything exploding. And I'll tell you why. Imagine you have all of these people at the same age in the workforce. This means they're all at the same stage of their lives. So they're all buying suits at the same time to go into their first corporate job. They're all buying houses at the same time. The demand went through the roof and prices went insane. It's probably the highest inflation we've ever seen in a long time, in a very, very long time, in modern times. It resulted in prices of everything exploding and it was the largest, largest demand shock the world has ever seen. Demand was so high and supply just couldn't keep up. This resulted in an increase of prices in oil, commodities, houses, and as mentioned, pretty much everything. If I back up the truck a bit, before this supply shock really begun, America lost 50% of their gold between 1959 and 1971. And there were 12 times the amount of dollars to gold. If you remember, Bretton Woods, America vowed to be backed by gold. But behind everyone's back, they were printing more dollars than gold, as agreed. So their lie would have been exposed massively. During this time, the US could not deal with being pegged to gold as they had more people coming into the workforce and this surge of demand. It wasn't possible. It really wasn't. So to keep up with their lie, unmanageable inflation and rising demand, President Nixon took the dollar off of the gold standard in 1971, which meant that money became fiat currency, which we spoke about before. Nixon really had no choice at the time. Otherwise, the entire US economy would have collapsed and their lie would have completely been exposed. The world would have lost faith in them. And it's arguable they wouldn't have been the world's superpower. If you're breaking promises to the world, there'll be bank runs. There would have been another massive depression. The worldwide economy would have collapsed. Funny thing is, I've said it before, Nixon said it'd be temporary. And we haven't seen any form of a gold standard since. And we're not even taught it at school which I find insane. How can we not be told that gold has been the epicenter of our value for thousands of years and now it's just irrelevant? It doesn't make sense. We're not taught at school how the value of our money is going down because it's not backed by a scarce commodity. It's, it's crazy. It does bug me. It grinds my gears, guys. I think that's the way of saying it. So in 1986, the last baby boomers enters the workforce. 1967 to 1986, was a time of mass inflation due to this. A huge demand shock took place within the world, as mentioned before, within this period. Since 1975, wages have never gone up in real terms. They've gone up roughly, if you average it, 0.3% per year since 1975. 
but inflation has always been greater than the wage increase. So inflation on average is 2% per year. And as some of you have seen on my Instagram at the investor side, I put a post on that. You have to work three times as hard today as you did in 1971 to buy your first house. And this is based on average property price and average wages. That is not fair. And it's not something we should accept. And the way of not accepting it, guys, is investing. I'm going to say it all the time. Maybe you're bored. I don't care. Invest your money. Invest your money before it's too late and you fall behind. So assets have been rising since, but wages haven't. Not investing is making your future self poorer. That's a fact, not a theory. So in a nutshell, savers are losing purchasing power every year due to inflation. Investors are becoming richer. And what this does, guys, is the opposite of the 50s. This creates a bigger gap and a bigger change in lifestyle between the rich and the poor. To summarise the 70s, the baby boomers who entered the workforce were promised the dream that their parents lived. And due to the increase in prices, devaluation in currency and reduction of interest rates, they've been left behind. The promise was broken that they felt they were entitled to. So the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And the expensive life we're living today is massively due to the post-war phase of euphoria, which overpopulated the world. We are an overpopulated species, whether we like it or not. David Attenborough says it in his Netflix show, and he's an expert on the field. So it's drove up prices and took us to where we are today quicker than it should have. We were always going to get here on a fiat system, and we were always going to go off the gold standard because historically expenses do get high and countries do this and the world does this. In the 1980s in the United Kingdom, council houses, so council houses were free housing for lower income families. Margaret Thatcher was the prime minister at the time and she realised that homeowners voted conservative. So what she done was to get more voters and stay in power was made it more affordable for lower income people to buy these homes at a cheap price. At the time, everyone was happy as, they, as they've been given an opportunity like never before. But long term, it got really ugly as people who are creditors, which means when you're not in debt, became debtors. Many lower income people became reliant on debt. And this is really responsible for our high debt society today. So the people that had more access to debt started investing into the stock market and real estate. Due to this access to debt, people started investing, the average person, which drove up prices of stocks and real estate. Therefore, for people saving money in the bank, they're losing their purchasing power even more so. They can afford less stocks, less real estate over time, and their wages aren't going up, which also doesn't help the cause. So it's all a butterfly effect, as everything is in economics. Everyone begins borrowing money to live this American dream, to get rich and participate in markets. But in reality, they're not getting rich. They're getting in debt. And whenever there's a market crash, and if you're in debt, your debt becomes harder to pay off. As mentioned in last week's podcast, deflation makes debt harder to pay off and results in disasters. So purchasing power is at all times lows and assets such as gold, stocks and real estate are at all-time highs. People are now becoming aware of this, so they're investing and borrowing money when the interest rates are low. It makes borrowing easier. 
This results in asset prices skyrocketing. In the 80s, a cult of credit, stocks and real estate begun. Before Wall Street was where investors would go to make, make a couple bucks. Wall Street emerged to mainstream levels never seen before and became a centre of the worldwide economy. This began in the 80s, where everyone began investing. The first major event in the 1990s was the fall and collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1990. This is a wall that separated East from West Germany. And what this done was, it showed a sign of a falling communism. So this forced other communist parties and countries, like China, to now participate in Wall Street. In 1996, they wanted to trade, change world trade to liberalise the markets and let all countries trade together, now communism's fallen, with low tariffs. So this allowed free, cheaper world trade between the countries. Global trading became cheaper. And what this done was, guys, this took power away from the individual. Why would you want to trade with a sole trader when you can trade with these large companies who are cheaper to import and export with? So not only can these large companies like before do it in larger bulk, trade in larger bulk, now, due to the low tariffs, they're undercutting the individual. And this is what was feared in 1913, if you guys remember from my last podcast. When the Federal Reserve come to play, agricultural people, farmers, they were all worried that it take power from the individual. And it took until 1996 to officially demolish the power of the individual. To make matters worse, the rise of technology comes, the computer emerges, and jobs are replaced by technology. So in other words, we're double fucked. In the 90s, the sole trade has been phased out due to cheap world trade, and due to technology, jobs are going out the window. So by the 90s, these baby boomers are in debt. They have lots of competition with one another and are being replaced by technology and cheaper and easier solutions. What seemed to help the average person with cheaper trade created an even greater division between the rich and the poor. And the middle class in today's world, guys, are slowly but surely being phased out. At the time, after this free trade deal was signed, the workers of Italy and Germany seemed to be a couple of the countries that coped well as they still traded within and relied on individuals. However, when the EU came into place in 1999, the same mistake was made and in the, the life of an individual and sole trading businesses would never be the same. Another thing, if I just back up a bit, this is something you really need to know to understand today and what's going on. So in 1987, Alan Greenspan, he was the chairman of the Federal Reserve. He did something never seen before. So the stock market in the 80s, the late 80s, crashed. And what he'd done was he hit the panic button and cut the interest rates, which prevented further recession. Since then, reducing interest rates has become a tool of central banking to stimulate the economy during times of panic. And we saw this during the global pandemic. And we've seen it more notoriously since the 08 crash. What they've done is to prevent the bubble from bursting, they've reduced interest rates, which keeps the economy stimulated as people want to borrow money. So to explain things simply, guys, interest rates, when raised, they make borrowing money and paying off debt more expensive. Therefore, it slows down the economy by raising interest rates. Lowering interest rates 
makes borrowing easier. It makes paying off debt cheaper. So people are more inclined to spend, borrow and invest, which normally results in asset prices increasing. So remember it for a summary. High interest rates equals slower economy. Low interest rates equals stimulated economy. The reason why I've touched and highlighted interest rates is because now in this timeline, we're in 1998. Interest rates were cut in the US due to the Asia crisis. Asia were borrowing dollars and investing it into emerging markets. They were over leveraged and heaped in debt and got completely wiped out. To be specific, Japan hasn't really recovered since. They've been in a 20 to 30 year depression. So due to these low interest rates in the United States, we saw the largest stock market bubble in all recorded history, the dot-com bubble. And I spoke about this in the past. This technology boom was fascinating for many people. So what people would do as interest rates were so low, they'd go to the banks, borrow money to buy these stocks without knowing anything about the stocks. They just see them go up. And it's similar with what we see with some cryptocurrencies today, but we're not on that level yet. Maybe we'll get a similar thing. Who knows? So Asia were damaged, so did not invest into these emerging markets. They were too hurt by the crash. So all of the money was sucked into the US stock market. A lot of these dot-com companies took on too much debt as the demand for them to grow rapidly grew, the pressure was on. It was so intense. So, and over time, people ran out of money to invest and the bubble burst. From here, everyone's hurt, everyone's wiped out and they're over leveraged in debt across the world. Everyone's in debt. They borrowed all this money from the bank, the crashes hit. So now women begin entering the workforce more than ever before. As the cost of living has gone up, people were forced to have double income households due to rising asset prices and increasing debt. In the 2000s, labour participation reduces as baby boomers start retiring. And what that means is the amount of people in the workforce. And this resulted in a reduction of spending as there's now less people in the workforce. So after the dot-com bubble, interest rates were getting cut again to promote spending. After the crash, deflation came in and deflation's the Fed's worst nightmare. So the only way for them to get people to spend was by lowering the interest rates. So now money's become easy to borrow again. And baby boomers, they're hurt by the stock market. They don't want to be putting this easy to borrow money in the stock market anymore as it brings back really bad memories. So what they begin doing is buying property. And the only way to buy property is with leverage through borrowing money. People were in more debt than ever before and banks were giving out these mortgages for fun, making more money than ever. Little did they realize at the time, it wasn't sustainable. And the people who they were giving these mortgages to couldn't afford these homes. So in these contracts, what would happen was the interest rates would kick in after the first year. There were some small print clauses that the banks weren't aware of, neither were the buyers. They were too focused on the short term. These people who couldn't afford homes before are like, wow, I can get a home. And these banks who are making all the money are going, wow, I can make all this money. So they're not reading the small print. And it resulted in the biggest financial collapse since the Great Depression. And Lehman Brothers, the sixth largest bank in America, went bust. To get us out of this recession, 
the banks cut interest rates, but it wasn't enough. Rates went to zero. So these banks and the Fed were backed in a corner. They couldn't use this trick anymore that Greenspan established in 87. So the banks are the ones who profited on us as the people. And at our expenses, they created the second biggest crash arguably ever. So ultimately, the central banks bailed out the banks instead of the people when it was the banks that let us down. What I'm going to go through now, guys, is how we reacted to the 08 crash. It's all well and good knowing how things happen. That's great. Also good to know how the Fed reacts. So for future, you can kind of see what they do. So what was agreed was the only way they can get out of this crash in 08 was to print a load of money into the system. And they called it quantitative easing, known as QE. Printing money sounds really bad when you say it, printing money. Everyone thinks, oh no, the value goes down. So they gave it a more professional word to make it sound more, more acceptable, basically. So in essence, the banks need to stop the collateral from going to zero. Otherwise, the system would collapse. Our system is in so much debt that if it was to collapse, it would be the worst crash in human history. This is where we are today, guys. We were here in 08 as well, and it's only gone a lot worse. So the only way in present times for the banks to keep this going is by quantitative easing, which again results in asset prices rising and purchasing power for savings declining. In the short term, we'll see some interest rates go up, but there'll be a certain level where they get to where they're going to have to put them down again. So this is a worldwide issue. All major countries are following the structure and they're backed into a corner. Since 2008, asset prices have risen dramatically and it's becoming harder for savers to participate as banks didn't want to lend between 2008 and 2015 due to regulation to prevent 08 happening again. In 2008, another eventful moment in history took place. The white paper for a peer-to-peer decentralised digital currency was created and released on October 31st, 2008 by an anonymous user known as Satoshi Nakamoto. This today is what we know as Bitcoin. And what I find fascinating, guys, honestly, is the fact that Bitcoin was created just after a financial crisis. The banks let us down with these loans that they were giving out for houses. And Bitcoin allows you to be your own banker. It means that you don't have to rely on these third parties, these corrupt third parties that reduce the purchasing power of your currency or get you in an economic mess because they're greedy. The banks have a massive influence nowadays. But after this, Bitcoin was created, which makes me think, is Bitcoin the solution to all of our downfalls? Many of the downfalls in financial systems have been have emerged really due to the lack of metal portability. So fiat currencies and greed from the central bank rose due to the lack of metal portability. Bitcoin solves all of these issues. Bitcoin solves the portability issues of metals as it can be sent from A to B at the speed of light, no matter where you're based and how much you need to send. It also has the same scarcity as the metals, which prevents inflation. So there'll only ever be 21 million Bitcoins. And it also removes the third party corrupt companies and banks as it allows us to look after our own finances with no banks getting involved by debasing our currency. 
So now, guys, like I hope you understand how Bitcoin ties in with all of this. We've gone from before Christ till Bitcoin. And you'd like to think if Bitcoin existed thousands of years ago, we'd be on a totally different system. Inflation probably wouldn't be an issue. And we'd have more control over our own property rights, which I think is more than fair. I don't think the bank should be having full control over what we own. We own it, guys. And we've got to go through a long process to get our money out of the bank. It's insane. It's really insane. It really is. Another thing, if you look at the charts of stocks, metals, and real estate, a lot of them are in line with each other since 2008. All they've done is hedged inflation. So they show the pattern that currency value is going down, it's being debased, and they're going up with it. And debasement makes it look like assets are going up massively. But in reality, it's just the currency that's losing value against these assets. This financial system, guys, it is not sustainable whatsoever. And be prepared to see a change in financial system in the next 10 to 20 years. I think we're really getting to that expiry date. So the only two major assets that outperformed since 2008 were the NASDAQ and Bitcoin. You can put all cryptos in that, but if you want to generalize it, the NASDAQ and Bitcoin. And both of these assets follow Metcalfe's law. This law is as the users of the network grow, as does the value of the network. What this shows is that we're entering a digital age. So now technology will likely be the best performer of the decade. This is where it gets even more alarming. So today, baby boomers can't afford to retire. So now they're working until they're older. And now there are 86 million kids in the US. They're also working at the same time. So we have the two most populated generations in the workforce at the same time, but with technology exploding. It's really unsustainable. And due to these times of struggle, we'll see the biggest wealth transfer in all recorded human history. And that's crypto decentralization and blockchain technology. This is where we'll go in the future. We'll remove the centralization, not completely from these third party institutions, but we'll reduce our reliance on central parties. And I think in the future, guys, we'll see a new digitalized economy. So our economy, our main economy, will be digital instead of tangible. You've seen it already. Loads of people are working from home. Since the global pandemic in 2020, we saw the government lend money to individuals and companies. 40% of all US dollars in circulation were printed since 2020 to pay for furlough and re-stimulating a sleeping economy, in other words, when everything shut down. So many people say that the stock market is the biggest bubble in the world, or even real estate. People are saying that nowadays. It can be debated, but another thing that you need to look into is the corporate debt bubble. This is companies, and it could be a big issue. So there are so many zombie companies who are in serious debt at the moment from what they have to pay off from the pandemic. They were out of business for a while, but they're okay paying off this debt in small amounts as interest rates are really low and the rates are close to zero, which means debt's easier to pay off. But if we see any interest rate hikes, any significant ones, and we're starting to see early days of it, we could see many of these companies go under as they won't be able to pay off their debt anymore. That is pretty scary to me, to be honest. And the Fed ultimately can't afford for any of this to happen. We can't afford for another major crash 
Otherwise, our entire economy will collapse. The pension system would collapse. Our pension system relies heavily on the stock market. When we give that money to the to the government or whoever we give it to, they invest it into the stock market. So they need the stock market to always go up over time. Imagine waking up in the morning, see that your pension's collapsed and you've got nothing to live off. How would you feel then? Where would your trust in the system be? Would you want to spend money? No, you wouldn't. Therefore, the only way, in my opinion, for the Fed to keep us out of this collapse, which is inevitable over time, is to keep printing money until our currency is totally debased. We'll see minor crashes in the future and maybe some greater ones, but the Fed will always be there to bail us out by printing money to stimulate our economy. It could have been undone, but there's no turning back from the Fed. We saw it in 1989, 2001, 2008, and in the 2020 pandemic. The Fed's worst nightmare is deflation, and they'll do anything they can, guys, anything to bail us out by printing money, to re-stimulate the dead economy. Again, what this does, I'll say it, it reduces your savings in the bank, and it makes investors richer. And what that does, it creates a bigger gap between the rich and the poor, more social unrest, a harder life for savers, and it's completely wiped out the working man since 1913 in the scheme of things, especially since 1971, when Nixon took the dollar off the gold standard. So the other case, let's say in a fantasy world, the second route the Fed can go down is raising interest rates, which will eventually result in the biggest depression of all time. We'd see serious deflation, unemployment and social unrest as we did in the Great Depression, times 10. As said, deflation is the Fed's worst nightmare. We saw them hike interest rates, the Fed, in 2018. The stock market dropped rapidly. So what the Fed done, they reduced the interest rates again and the stock market went back up. This alone gives me the indication and belief that we'll see extreme inflation this decade. Also, as I said, our pensions are so reliant on this stock market, they can't afford for it to collapse. They really can't. There are a few other factors that make me believe we'll see a decade of high inflation. So one of them is that we're taxed to pay for our NHS in Europe, along with other things. Free, free healthcare is a benefit for many. However, when all of the baby boomers go to death, who's going to pay off the most expensive healthcare bill in history? All of these people are going to be dying and wiped out at the same time. All of the baby boomers are going to need the same treatment at the same time. It's going to put expenses and stress through the roof in the healthcare sector. And the only way to pay this off is for the Fed to print more money. It really is. And even in recent times, just when we've seen the Fed have said they want to tighten their balance sheet to deal with inflation, which is fair enough. Inflation's run wild. It really has. Look at the fuel prices, everything. And then war in Ukraine comes out. And I'm not saying there'll be a world war at all. Or that the Fed won't raise rates gradually until they put them down again over time, which is inevitable. But what I'm saying is no one knows what's around the corner. Look at the pandemic. Anything can come around the corner, which will result in needing to print more money as we're in so much debt to fund things. And it will just make inflation go further. For those of you who have had the patience to watch episode one and episode two, I hope you now understand why it's so important to invest 
And it's a lot to take in, guys. I'm not telling you guys to be experts. I'm, I'm not an expert on, on the economy. I'm really not. But I understand how the system works. And that, for me, is good enough. It's a good enough reason for me to protect my wealth and know where to put it at certain times and for the long term. So when I see a short-term correction in price, when I see Bitcoin lose 50% of its value, it doesn't bother me as I'm in this to protect my wealth for my future children, for my family and for their family and for the generations to come. I will never tell you guys where to invest your money. You guys have different responsibilities to me. You guys have different risk appetite to me. We, we're all different. So all I will tell you is do some research if you're not invested already and invest. And if you're heavily invested into one thing, maybe look at diversifying your portfolio as well. That's what I'd say. So when central banks print a lot of money, Ray Dalio, famous investor says, buy stocks, gold and commodities. They will weather the storm. But I would also add to that, if you can afford it, buy real estate as well. That grants you a passive income and you get paid twice in capital appreciation, which is the value of the property going up and in rent, passive income when you're a landlord. So that's one thing. Also, I'd like to add crypto to that. So here's my version. When central banks print a lot of money, buy stocks, gold, crypto, real estate and commodities. To close it up, guys, just want to let you guys know a fact also to add further emphasis to what I'm trying to explain. Of the roughly 750 fiat currencies that existed in the year 1700, less than 20% now exist and 100% of them have lost a lot of their value. So guys, leave the consumer side, leave the observer side and join the investor side. Thank you so much for listening. Any questions, DM me on at the investor side. And if you haven't watched part one, watch part one. It will help you understand part two more. God bless and peace out, guys. Thank you. Mm-hmm.